Please pray with me. Uh, dear Father, we're, uh, we're humbled to be in your presence. Ask you to bless uh, Robert and Carrie. Uh, give them give them your power, your wisdom, and we we just uh, honor that we can continue to grow and learn to love you more. Father, uh, bless us. Help us to be attentive and and uh, constantly growing so we can serve you better and love you more. And it's through your son Jesus, give you thanks. Amen. All right, again, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, and we're just going to kind of to sort of review a little bit here. Uh, as we talk about raising up campus ministers uh, in, our, in our groups, one of the things I think that we need to be incredibly careful about is that we make sure that we're biblical. There's, there's nothing wrong with, with trying to follow you know, trends and understanding that we have to learn to adapt to people. But there's a reason why the Bible describes itself as the enduring Word of God, that everything else passes and everything else fades, but the Word of God remains forever. And that being so, that's not just a statement of the fact that we'll have a Bible forever. That passage, what, what, what Peter is saying, is that the principles in, in the Scripture are enduring and that they last forever. So when we're looking for ways to develop people and raise up leadership, it is super important that we understand... I have the power. <laughs> it is really important that we understand that, that the Word of God is the enduring blueprint for developing people. You're not coming out over there, which means you're not recording. I'm not coming out over there. We're recording right here. Okay. Right? Are we cool? Yeah. Uh, where's... Yeah, I thought they recorded through the system. Mike is also there. Okay. Cool. Okay, gotcha. Where was I? So anyway, the Word of God is that which is enduring. And to look to Jesus as that model of the person who came down as the Word in the flesh. So we have the written Word and we have the incarnate Word that allows us to... Uh, I don't have a clue what's going on there. I can't handle that thing. <laughs> we have the written word that gives us specifics, but we also have the incarnate word who illustrates for us. So we have sort of a show and tell experience when we read through the Gospels and we read through the Scripture. We get the word, this, you know, the word over and over again gives the principles of how do you develop people, how do you make sure that you have impact, and then we get to see Jesus in perfect... <laughs> That came out on Jesus. That was a good thing. Uh, and Jesus... Do you want me to take it off or you want to... There's your hand held. That's what I said, but they said they're recording it right here. West. Yeah, West, they're not recording through, through there. Okay. He, he, yeah, you got to record it. Don't understand. All right, it's recording through for over there, he said also. So anyway... So we want to make sure that we stay biblical and we really do ground ourselves in something that is, that is stronger than cultural trends and that, is, that was divine, designed by God to transcend those cultural trends. So when we look at the ministry of Jesus, it serves as a pattern for us in, in, in everything, but especially in the development of people. Nobody in the history of this world has influenced people like Jesus has. And Jesus' influence came through the training, the equipping, the raising up of 12 men. That was his central, his central focus. So we've been in Mark chapter 3, and we've been in Luke's account just a little bit, because what's revealed in Luke's account that, we didn't, that, that Mark doesn't reveal is the night before Jesus goes up into this mountain, he calls these people, uh, he prays about it. And it's a central thing. That's a super important thing that goes on, and the gospel gives us the picture. But I just want us to read the passage again uh, as, we, as we go through this so that we, uh, that we, that we can understand what's going on. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Here's our, our text for the nine principles. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to, the, called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. 
he appointed twelve, designating them apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. These are the, the twelve that he appointed, and we won't go into the twelve right now. So yesterday as we were talking about the, the first principles that we have in, in, in this development of people, how do you raise up people? The first principle was the principle of observation. And that is this, Jesus did not go out and find 12 men uh, on one day and the next day appoint them and, and choose them to be equipped for leadership. But instead, he observed them, he observed them and how they were relating to people, he also observed how they were relating to him. There are several opportunities, if, if we were to do a breakdown, we don't have time to do this, but sometimes when I was growing up I got the idea that Jesus selected them, uh, Jesus met them, he selected them and, and, and there they went. But there is a, a, a several-month exploratory kind of relationship that's going on to where I think Jesus is watching them and they're watching Jesus. And so if you're, gonna, if you're going to, to, to develop people, you can destroy the developmental process if you're picking people whose character isn't in line with the development of a, a leader for Christ. So observe them, watch them, and see how they act, not just around you, because they'll try to impress you. You know, think of how Peter was with Jesus. You know, no, nobody else will deny you. I mean, everybody else will deny you, but I won't. He scored brownie points for himself. But you don't step back. If you'll stop listening and just watch Peter, you go, you're a big talker, but you have problems following through. That has to be addressed. So you have the principle of observation. Don't lay hands on people quickly. Second principle is the principle of invocation. And that is just a principle of prayer. Again, we don't get that out of Mark chapter 3, but we get out of Luke's account where before this goes on, there's prayer. And if you were to read about the selection of leadership and the development that's going on, you'll find out throughout Scripture that you'll find prayer and even fasting associated with the selection of leadership and getting the right people as much as in relation to almost anything else. So make sure you're praying about that. If Jesus, the Son of God, needed to spend a night in prayer before he, he engaged these men and committed, came to this tipping point where these are my guys, then you and I need to do that. The third principle was the principle of reciprocate of uh, selection. To where the Bible says he called those that he wanted. And he, he literally had to, had to have a very specific selection process. And he chose people and he was saying, I am committing to you. He's sort of moving out of the dating realm into the, to the marriage realm. To where now he's been with these people, he's spent some time with them, but for the next two and a half years, he is going to literally spend more time with them than he will without them. And so he commits to them. He chooses them. And one of the things, if you're going to have a, a, if you're going to have a, a real good relationship with raising people up, you've got to have a solid commitment to choose them because if you've not really chosen them in your heart, when they do something dumb or when they begin to grade on you, or when there's something that happens that causes conflicts, you will give up on them. The same principle that's true in marriage, the reason marriages don't work in our culture isn't because we have more problems now than we did then. But years ago there was a commitment that said, whenever I say I'm, I'm marrying you, I'm choosing you for sickness and health, and we really meant I chose you. And choosing meant not just choosing for the ceremony, but there was an enduring choice that went on. So when you choose the people that you're following, there really is a commitment to say, I am going to stay with you and develop you through thick and thin. And they need that kind of commitment. People who are, who are immature and people who are baby Christians or, or, or young, young people of the faith, they need somebody that they know is going to be with them. In our culture, especially, guys, uh, in our culture, abandonment is a, is a dominant issue. 
Most of our people, the overwhelming number of our people have had either dads or moms or both abandoned them. So they are leery of trusting and they're leery of engaging because of the hurt. And so it's really important that in, in your relationship with them, you model both a, a, a fidelity, a faithfulness to them and an enduring commitment that allows them to be able to rest on you and to know that you're trustworthy, but also it helps them develop trust later on, which they will need for other significant relationships. So there's, a, there's that, that, the, the process of uh, selection. The second, the next, number four, was reciprocation. The Bible says he called those he wanted and they came to him. You don't see any twisting of arms. You don't see him then being forced to do that. You don't see him being coerced into it. And just that principle is there are some people that you may look at and go, man, I really like that. I feel really close to this person. And, and, and that's cool. You really love them. But they don't like you at all. And that's a mixture that unless there is a, unless there is a mutual commitment. Guys, we understand that, don't we? There's lots of beautiful girls that we wanted to be engaged with. Okay, right? The problem is, they had no interest in us. And so that just didn't work out for us, did it? And the truth is, in the developmental stages of relationships also, when you're talking about choosing somebody to mentor, you're talking an incredible investment of your time. And you don't have time to try to persuade somebody to allow you into their... You'll chase them, and you'll be exhausted and frustrated by the chase. If they're not committed to the relationship, if they're not committed to growing... It's not that time for that relationship, so find somebody who is. You cannot underestimate the importance of their desire to be mentored or to be trained. The apostles had lots of incredible problems when you read uh, through the Gospels from this point on. But the one thing that's unwavering is the idea that we are here to be trained. We're here to do something. You are our rabbi. You are our teacher. You are our master. And they didn't understand that he was God at that point. Okay? They didn't understand that. They just know that I want to be like this guy. So there's the principle of, of reciprocation, and now we move on to number five, and that is yours, isn't it? No. Yes. Yes. No, go. You mean to do that? Hold on, we're going to move back here. All right, so uh, the next principle is uh, concentration. I must focus on the few in order to reach the many. Uh, one of the things I'm going to, for, for the college students who are here, I'm going to educate you about something, and for those of you who already have a job, you've probably already experienced this. But uh, I don't know how many of you have been on job interviews to where they sit down with you and they show you the job description. And as you go down through a job description, you're looking at that description like, oh, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, that seems like this should be part of the job. And you go through this whole list of things. And down at the bottom, uh, if your employer is very smart at all, they always tag this extra line on it. And it says something to the effect of other duties as a sign. How many of you have ever seen that before? And what that means is we own you and you're going to do whatever we say. But the problem with that is, the thing that I've noticed is they give you this job that they say they want you to do, and they want you to do a great job at it, but then they have this other tagline that says other duties is assigned, and so they throw all this other junk on you that keeps you from really effectively doing the job that they hired you to do in the first place. And uh, the, we joke all the time, my boss jokes with me about how where I work that, uh, that we're famous for hiring people and working them to death. And, uh, and that they can't accomplish the things that they're really there to accomplish because they have too many things going on. Well, when it comes to working with people, the very same thing can happen. To where you're working with people and you get so overwhelmed because you're trying to concentrate on a, a whole campus ministry or a whole church and no one is getting what they need and they're not being developed, so they're not able to pass that down to other people, so everyone is getting crumbs. 
and no one is really getting the meat that they deserve and that they need. Uh, I was talking to a businessman uh, yesterday, actually, and we were talking about this very principle, and he was saying that studies show that a really good manager can, can handle about eight people under, under them, working with them, and that a super, was it super? A super manager can handle 12. And uh, too many times what happens is we get thrown into the scene and we think, oh, now I've got this campus ministry of 30 people and I've got I've to get with each one of them and I've got to develop each one of them the same and I've got to spend equal amounts of time with each of them. And it just doesn't work that way. We're not able to effectively do, do what we need to do. In 2 Timothy 2, 2 uh, Paul writes er, and says, The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. And sorry, and uh, he's, he's letting us know here, Paul's telling Timothy, says, listen, you're not going to be able to handle everything. You're not going to be able to train everybody in the way that they need and make sure they get the time and the energy and the effort that they need. And so he says, what you've got to do is you've got to find some reliable men, some men who are teachable, some men who will listen, who you can teach so that they can go out and they can teach others to do the same thing. And this multiplication starts happening. And you start seeing, man, whenever I help, when I help two people, they go out and help two more people, and they go out and help two, it just, it, it grows exponentially. But too many times we think that we've got to focus on this huge group of people so nothing gets done. That's why in so many of our churches, for so long, the, the, the preacher is the one who studies the Bible with everyone. The preacher is the one who goes and makes, you know, the, and the elders, they go and make the visits at the hospital. And they, and they get overwhelmed with everything that they have going on. And those are good things. And those are not things I'm saying those people shouldn't be doing. But shouldn't the rest of the church be trained to do those same things? Shouldn't the rest of the church, shouldn't the rest of your campus ministry, the people in your ministry, they should be able to sit down and study the Bible with people. And Matthew and I were talking last night about how much easier it is in campus ministry when you can sit down with someone, you can say, hey, I'm going to teach this to you so you can teach it to someone else. And then the campus ministry is not screwing around trying to develop everyone because there's reliable men and women walking alongside of them, partnering with them to make sure the people in the ministry are developed in the way that they should be. We have to learn to concentrate our focus and narrow our focus so that we're able to affect more people. And, and it seems backwards, but that's the truth and that's the way it happens. I think when we look, there's so many needs and, and our, our little ducky darling, wherever she moved to, she's back here. I made her sit back there when she did the steak and I think she got a little, I got a little spooky. I had a lady pull a knife on me one time in a counseling situation setting clothes. But, but there are so many needs that sometimes what we try to do is to go everywhere and cover everything. And I don't know, again, uh, in our, as we were talking with some guys yesterday, uh, they were talking about how when there's an, an urgent need, you know, that you, can, that you can sometimes spread yourself so thin that you get nothing done. If there's a fire in an apartment building, you have a bucket of water, you, you run up and, and there's fire everywhere, so you take a drop out of the bucket and throw it on this here. And you take a drop out and you throw it there and you take a drop here. And what ends up happening is you do nothing. And if you would have taken the whole bucket in one area, at least you might have saved something. And concentration is that principle that says, listen, I can, I can so dilute what I'm doing. If Jesus developed, and if Jesus saw that the importance and, and, and his limitations as a human being, and he was limited as a human being, he, he walked into our shoes to do what he wanted us to do in our shoes so that we would know that people in our shoes could do it. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that he modeled for us. And our job, even in Scripture, is not to do everything as leaders, but ultimately, if you were to look at how a church that's healthy and growing functions, it's when you have leaders who are equipping the 
the, the other disciples for works of service. Now understand, everybody is a servant in the, in the kingdom of God. If you're not a servant, you're not in the kingdom. And so those of us who are preachers, all we are is servants. All we are is, if we are elders, we're servants. The best leaders in the kingdom are only the, are the, are the best followers. That's how you get great at being a leader is being a great follower. But our role has to be different. Because if we get caught up in everything, we won't equip and we'll be caught up waiting on tables at the expense of the Word of God being spread. I, I, there are things, I will do anything. Uh, people will tell you uh, that know me from back at Greater Alton, when we started, man, I, we, we rented places. We did, so I, cl I cleaned toilets. Nobody shampooed the carpet as many times as I did by myself, my wife and I late at night. Nobody, there was so much going on. And, and that sounds like that's a noble thing, and maybe it is. But the problem is sometimes that was easy for me to do. I got immediate satisfaction knowing I'd accomplished something, but something somebody else could have easily have done that. But there's some things that God had assigned me to do that others couldn't do in the beginning of that baby church. They weren't mature enough. So there has to be an idea of concentration in your campus ministry. Because if I were to have somebody come up, and, and we could use the illustration, if we had one of these, uh, can I borrow somebody? Uh, do we have a little platter over here? Imagine I'm a, I'm a waiter and I've got a little platter on my, my a waitress, okay? No, don't imagine that, okay? Uh, imagine that, I, that, that I'm a waiter and you you saw waiters carry glasses on, on their uh, on their on these trays. When you start as a waiter or a waitress, you don't carry a lot of glasses. Have you ever been waitresses? I've been a waiter, waitress. When you just begin, you got those people that have been there for a long time and they've got like you know sixty glasses on there and you're going, how do you do that? And so you decide you'll try and you drop it with two, right? But, but honestly, so, but even the greatest of waiters or waitresses, you know what happens if you keep loading on? Sooner or later, it collapses and everything falls apart. And sometimes we've got people who have really good hearts and they're, really, they're, they're willing to carry that burden, but what we don't know is that's, that's not wise because what's going to happen is the campus ministry is going to get so large and now you're trying to meet every need and they are going to collapse under the weight of the immaturity. Not because you're not strong, but because you can't handle everybody. So you've got to make sure that you concentrate. So in a restaurant, if it gets busier, they, what they do, they get another waitress that comes in, and the person who's good says, here's what you do. No, don't try carrying the bunch right now. Just watch. This is how you hold it. Here's how you set it. Make sure they're balanced, and you train. And more people get served without somebody getting food dumped on them, okay? It can get messy. So the principle of concentration, principle number six, five, six, the principle of association, okay? He selected 12, that's concentration. Association is that he might be with them. One of the things that you have to recognize is that influence comes your influence can only really be maximized up close with people. You can impress people from a distance, but you will really only impact their lives up close. And so it's not enough for you to just simply give out words and instructions. You've got to do more than that. You've got to, to, to give, them, give them your life. In Acts chapter 
4 verse 13 the Bible says and, and this is again in the context of the persecution and some people who don't like the Christians they're pulling them in and, and it says after they found out that Peter and John had no education or special training they were surprised to see how boldly they spoke they realized that these men had been with Jesus now th that idea of, of this, this boldness and this incredible ability to do something that, that they can't account for all of a sudden, they're going, oh, uh, we know how that happened. They spent time with Jesus. And one of the things, if you're, if you're going to raise up leaders, you can't raise up leaders unless you spend time with leaders. Jesus comes into this world and for 30 years lives a rather anonymous life. And you're going, man, what does he do during that time? And here, you want me to tell you, we don't know. I believe he, bit it. He, he, he matured his faith in God on a human level. He did the things that he needed to do. But we don't know a lot. But what we do know after that is in the three years that followed, the dominant thing that you would say Jesus did was spend time with 12 men. That, that's the, that's the, he fed some people. He healed some people. But all of those in, in a time comparison on a graph would look minuscule compared to the emphasis that is on spending time with people. As a matter of fact, all of those things that he does, check and see how many times he does something significant without those 12 men being there. Find the miracles that he does whenever some of those 12 aren't there. And you will begin to see that even the miracles, and even while there's compassion and care for the, for the people that he's dealing with, there is also something, there is something he's trying to transfer and he's trying to train with the 12. He's trying to teach them. So this idea of this association transcends and it shows up later on. It shows up in the lives of the apostles and later on when you see Paul going into a church, you see him coming in, not as some, some weird guy, but, but if you have your Bibles, flip over to, to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I don't know, we, I wasn't going to have this on the slide, but it's significant enough uh, what I want to read to you in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, whenever I get over there, is I want you to notice the relational component of Paul's leadership. He is obviously not someone who is simply writing letters from a distance because he is an apostle and he has the right to. He is the ultimate shop caller, but he doesn't act like a shop caller because he knows it quite frankly that authority does not influence without relationship. It causes resentment. And so what Paul does, if you notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I want you to notice as we read through several verses that are here, and Carrie's got them down, but we're going to read, first of all, begin in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 with verse 1. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. Now I want you to circle, you know, because it's a statement of certainty on the part of Paul that would only be possible if he understood the relational presence that he had in their life. They don't know these things because they've heard about them secondhand. You're going to find out that through this, that there is a relationship that's so close to the people that he's working with, they know about him. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not in vain. Skip down to verse 5. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. And what he's saying is, and so are you. Skip down then from there to verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. 
We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel to you. Look at verse 10. You are witnesses. Again, you are witnesses. And so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you. Look at verse 11. For you know that we dealt with, his, with, with you. You know, you know, you saw, you watched, you remember. And so later on when Paul will write to Timothy, he'll say, Timothy, you know all about my way of life, my manner of teaching. He didn't just say, remember Isaiah 7, 4. He, is going, he points him to Scripture, but it's just like Jesus. It's in the context of relationship, of association. You see, whenever God trains a person, He doesn't just give them a Bible. He doesn't just give them a, a printed page with His Word on it. He gives them the person with the Word within it. And that Word is designed to be, to be a living example that you follow. And if you notice what Paul says in verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, you know how we worked among you. If you're not really careful sometimes as a leader, you'll work above people and be aloof. And you'll be separated. But remember what Jesus said? The greatness is about service. And what did He say? I, he didn't just say, I'm a servant. But He said, I am among you. That's the position of a servant. I am among you as one who serves. And so, if I'm going to serve somebody, I've got to be among them. If I'm going to transfer and train, I've got to intensify that. I've got to choose... You, you want to be the most frustrating thing in the world for your people is you'll, you'll appoint somebody as a leader and, not, not, and then not give them your time to teach them how to be a leader. And generally speaking, we do that horribly both within campus ministries and with churches. That, you know, we just say, okay, and, and again, not, not a hack on anybody, we'll just let the Holy Spirit lead. Well, when the Holy Spirit revealed how He led in the Scripture, He gave a pattern of development. He didn't just say, go out and do your thing. Paul didn't say, Timothy, just go do what you want. But he says, Timothy, the things that you've seen, the things that you heard in me, these entrust to reliable men who will be able to teach others also. The Holy Spirit has recorded in words something that nothing should... If, if you have some kind of idea that God has prompted you in some area, if it contradicts this idea, it is not the Holy Spirit. It's a holy messed up spirit, okay? You will not develop people outside of spending time with people. And you are not simply a commander who sets up somewhere and barks off orders because you've been given a ministry title or position, whether it be campus minister, evangelist, pastor, whatever, whatever. It's none of that. Because he's in Jesus himself would say that his effectiveness as a high priest was contingent upon his being among the people. You and I have got to be among them if we're going to be effective at raising people up. If we're going to be effective at raising people up and if we're going to be effective if you're following someone wanting to be raised up, then uh, imitation is the next principle that we have to have. They did what he did. Uh, having uh, two little boys, I have my son Jackson, and he is eight years old, and I have Lincoln, who's about 20, 21 months old. And uh, one of the funny things is that people who watch Lincoln and who have seen, who saw Jackson when he was little, they're like, man, he's like a carbon copy of Jackson. And uh, Jackson is a pretty hyper kid. He's back there somewhere. Hey, Jackson, stand up and wave at everybody for a second. <laughs> Jackson. Seven. He's going to be eight. He's going to be eight in August, so I keep saying he's eight. Uh, 
So he, uh, he's a super hyper kid, and he'll like, he like runs and jumps and climbs things. He has no business climbing and jumping off things that scare me to death. And the thing is that we have this, uh, there's a couch in our living room, and then there's like a raised rail that goes into our dining room, so it's like kind of staggered. And Jackson will climb on top of the couch and then climb over the rail, or he'll climb over the rail onto the top of the couch and jump onto the floor. Well, my son, my 21-month-old son, does the same things. He climbs up it, and he's trying to get over the rail, and I, the, the other day he, he hides from me because he sees Jackson doing it, and I leave his room for a second, I come back in, and, and I hear something, and I hear him going, and he's laughing. And I'm like, where are you at? And I'm like looking in the closet, I'm looking under stuff, and my son has a suspended bunk bed, there's no bed under it, it's just like hanging from the ceiling. And I turn around, Lincoln, my tw- at the time, he was like 19, 18, 19 months, had climbed the ladder and was hiding under the blankets on the top bunk, looking through the thing, laughing. He does whatever his big brother does. Now, that can be a good thing or a bad thing. And there are things that, that don't really matter that are trivial that he'll imitate Jackson in. But one of the talks that Jackson and, and Kennedy and I have about their baby brother is that he's going to be like them. If they're godly and they do and they have good attitudes and they treat their mom and dad right and they treat each other right, Lincoln's going to do that same thing. And if they're ungodly and they have bad attitudes and they smart off to their mom and dad and they treat each other terribly, then guess what? Lincoln's going to learn those same things because he wants to be like them. He, he wants to imitate the things they do. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus is talking. He says, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. And then you look at Mark 3, verse 14, a little later, he says, He appointed the twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that they might send them out to preach. And he says, he tells the apostles, hey, I need to go preach. And they follow him around, and they see the way he talks with people, and they see the way that he communicates, and they see the way he interacts with the people he's talking to. And 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 he's doing this for a reason. He's doing this so that he can train them to imitate him to do the same thing because a couple chapters later he says, it says, okay, he did this so that he could send them out to be like him. And as people who are trying to develop people, we need to realize that's a good thing and it can be a bad thing. As campus ministers trying to develop people, what are we calling our people to imitate? Whenever you're saying, hey, I, I, you need to do the things that I'm doing and imitate my faith as I imitate Christ. Are they going to become more like Christ? As they follow you, as they imitate you, are they getting closer to being more like Jesus? We have to be very, very careful with our example because, and this isn't a putting out to our campus students, but they're kind of like kids. They're They're going to imitate and they're going to mock and they're going to become what they see. And so as as leaders in our campus ministries, and if you're a preacher, if you're an elder, you have to remember that the people following behind you are going to become like you. And I look at with my children and I say, man, if my kids turn out like me, am I going to be happy with what I've done? And, And it's a constant call for me to be something more, for me to be something better, for me to be a better man of God. You know, and I watch sometimes as my, there's a guy named TC, and TC, some of you know TC, and TC has a great heart, he's a good guy, and he's grown tremendously, but I remember whenever Maria found out she was pregnant, TC coming up saying, I have got to be a better man, I've got to change some things, I'm going to have a kid, and that kid's going to follow in my footsteps, and they're going to imitate me, and I want to, I want them to have an amazing relationship with God, and to be a man or a woman that makes an impact on the world, so that's what I have to do. 
And I saw TC take a step up in maturity and watching the way he behaved and the things that he did and the way that he believed and, and take that much more seriously because he knows what's at stake. And as people who are trying to develop the, our, our campus students, there is a lot at stake. There are, so many, there are so many things that rely on the example that we're setting for them as we follow Christ. It, we, can't, we can't afford not to take that, that role seriously. I think one of the things we have to recognize, this is one of those scary things, because we go, imitation, you know, that, on any number of things, we go, oh, you know, we're, we're going to have a bunch of clones, and, and that's probably not going to happen. But so we just say, well, we're not going to have imitation. And, and several years ago, when I first got in ministry, after about a few months, I just decided my sermons were not very good. And it wasn't that people were complaining and they felt entertained, but I just didn't believe I was giving them solid food uh, from the Word of God the way... It just wasn't good, and so I made a commitment, and I started listening to two preachers that probably, I don't know how many of you have ever heard of either one of these. One of the guys was Richard Rogers. Anybody remember Richard Rogers in here? Uh, it's kind of cool because I listened to him and take for years, and before Richard died, he and I became uh, good friends, and, and you know, he, he gave me, he felt very comfortable, you know, giving input into my life and, and very blunt impact into my life. Uh, and so, and the other guy was a guy named Charles Hodge. Anybody, Charles Hodge, okay? And uh, the, the, the uh, Onion, Onion Creek philosophy, and it's cool because he also uh, is somebody that, that I, I got to become friends with, and one of my prized possessions is one of the books that before it was ever in print, he wrote on it and wrote a note to me. But Charles one time said, Robert, he goes, you know, in the church, he goes, one of the things that you can't ignore in Scripture is that, that we are creatures who follow. It's just the way we are. That God made us when he describes us as sheep, he says you're followers. That's the ultimate lesson of sheep. Sheep are not creative, innovative people. They're followers. And he said, we never, we never want to deal with that completely. And he said, we, we're, whenever Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, when he says, imitate me, when he says, join with those who, who, follow, who, who uh, follow my example, when he says to 1 Thessalonians, the next verse down, when he says, you became imitators of the churches, what he's only acknowledging is, our, our, is how we are made as human beings. And Hodge said, you know, the problem is that, and there's a book I would suggest, if you're a teacher, if you can get Charles Hodge's book on teachers, it's not trendy, it's not, but it is one of the most incredible books on teaching. Uh, kids in classrooms, and, and it transcends that into just real life. Just some really good stuff. But one of the things that he says in that book is, we need teachers who are going to say, be like me. And he said, the reason that we don't say that is sometimes just in this false humility, but most of the time we know that there's areas of our life that we don't address. And Charles told me one time, he said, Robert, it doesn't matter whether we say be like me or not. The reality is they're going to be. So rather than not getting all hung up and, oh, should you say that or not, we better make sure that instead of going, well, don't imitate me, we need to start asking, the, instead of making that statement, we need to start asking the question, what are they going to be like when they imitate me? You know, we know as parents, I know as a parent, it does zero good for a parent to say to a child, do as I say, not as I do. That is an incredible philosophy for rebellion in a child. It's the pharisaical approach. You know, I'll give you Moses' words when I'm sitting on Moses' seats, and they're authentic and they're right. But whenever I'm not on that seat, my life is, is, is incredibly hypocritical. And if you remember what Jesus said about that, he said, you guys, that's a horrible position. Do as I say, not as I do is a horrible position because it keeps you from being in relationship with Jesus. And he says, not only that, it causes the people who are seeking to not have a relationship with Jesus. And he says also, it's contagious, a spirit. It, 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 it 
goes everywhere. He says, you travel land over sea to make one convert, and he becomes the hypocrite that you do. And that's all about doing as I say, not as I do. You see, Jesus made us, and so here's the thing is, our churches, and it's obvious, anywhere that you go, the church imitates the leadership. And you can fight that, all, and, and that, that concept all you want to, but Jim McGuigan once said, one time said, don't kid yourselves. Our leaders tell us and show us what to believe and how to behave. Either That's who we follow. And so that's just one of the things that I know. Whenever Kerry's growing up, he's going to be like me. And if he was like me in my teen years, in my early years, he would be one perv. I mean, you know, he would, he would be in trouble, okay? And so there was really a serious call for me to be different. And so you guys, they're going to be like you. And if you're talking about raising up a campus leader, if you're not evangelistic, they won't be evangelistic. If you don't care about the truth of the Word of God, they won't care about the truth of the Word of God. If you're not somebody who loves the body of believers, they won't love the body of believers. The longer they're with you, they'll be more like you. So make sure that you understand that. Next principle is the principle of authorization. He called 12 that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach. And he gave them authority to cast out demons. One thing that we are famous for doing in our structure is micromanaging. To where you tell somebody to do something, but you neither give them authority or at the crossings. The greater problem is we never give them the budget to do it. Would you mind making this incredible thing? How much money do I have? <laughs> that is crossings language for nothing. All right? Uh, and so and, and, and it's, it's really frustrating. But you've got to give these guys authority to do some things. And we get so afraid, you know, of that because, you know, and I'm not sure why. Sometimes it's pride. Sometimes it, it, it's, it's, it's grounded in some legitimate fears. But there is a greater fear than somebody going out and misusing our, the authority or, or going too far. I think the parable of the talent says that Jesus would much rather risk somebody going too far than he would have someone burying their talents. And I'm afraid that sometimes if we're not careful, we have one-talent people and we don't give them the chance to bury their talent because we do. We don't give them the authority to explore how that's going to work out. And so Jesus sends them out. Now understand, the, the, the impartation of authority when we talk here does not preclude the idea that there's accountability. I, 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 whenever I'm working with somebody and when you're working with somebody, I don't believe, and, I don't, and the reason I don't believe this is I don't see it in the ministry of Jesus or in the ministry of Paul. If we're going to talk about the development of people, the planning of churches, if we use the, 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 the Bible as that kind of guideline, you see that even after Paul and Timothy go out, and even after the, there's an accountability that comes on, and maybe the best place that you could see that with Jesus and the training of the twelve is, is in Luke chapter 10. And I don't think I have this on the slide, but remember Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, just turn them over there. Uh, it, it's, it's a session where Jesus is commissioning. It's not the Great Commission, but it's where he's commissioning his disciples. He's been with them for a while now, and, and the fulfillment of Mark chapter 3 is about to happen. Mark chapter 3 is the intent about what is going to happen. And when you move over to Luke chapter 10, you have the beginning of the fulfillment of that with, with the 72 that is kind of broadened out there. But if you look, at, look in, in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 20, he sends them out, the 72 out, in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Oh, man, we're cool. We're, we're kicking Satan's tail. It's awesome. God is working. 
And that's good. But Jesus sees an emphasis that's not good that he would only see by giving them some authority. Guys, listen, there are things that you will, you will not see about the person you're working with until you give them authority. There are people that you would think there's no problem with pride, but you give them some authority. And you so well, well then we better not give it to them. No, you give it to them and you deal with it. Jesus doesn't freak out. Notice what, what, what happens next in this particular verse. He replied, Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning, lightning from the heaven. I've given you authority to trample snakes and scorpions to overcome the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. He goes, awesome, that's good that that happened. However, and here's that accountability that comes as he helps them mature. However, rejoice not that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Guys, don't get caught up in the, in the spectacular stuff. Understand the most important thing is your relationship with God. And I think he does that because later on they're going to run into some stubborn spirits. And if all we're, all we, all we're they're, they're centering on is the exciting stuff that can happen in ministry, you can have all these conversions, that's exciting. Man, we win and we knock doors and we had 10 studies and 12 baptisms. Awesome, but, but rejoice not that you had 12 baptisms, but rejoice that you have a relationship with Jesus. Well, what's he trying to do? Because you're going to knock doors sometimes and you're going to get zero studies and zero baptisms. And if you're living on the emotional high that's there, you'll quit. If you're doing it to get the results, you'll quit. But if it's about you and your relationship with God, you'll keep going. But he gives them, it's only when he gives them the authority to try some things that he gets to delve deeper into their heart and to help them mature so do this, and again, follow the ministry pattern of Jesus. He doesn't train the twelve and then die and send them out. But you will see through the times of the gospel that there are limited commissions and times where they go out and explore on their own, and he tells them how you deal with it and what they did well and what they did wrong and what they need to make sure to do when somebody rejects and, and what do you do when somebody's open to the truth. But you've got to give some people some authority. You can't keep it all for you. And authority is not a bad thing, by the way. It's become a bad thing. In Scripture, authority is not a bad thing, okay? It, it, it's it, it's a, simply the means by which you have the power to influence. So we're not, we're not talking about being, giving somebody a right to be a commander-in-chief. But we're talking about loving people and saying, okay, yes, you can do that. We're going to have, yeah, yeah, you want to do that study? Go for it. It doesn't mean that when you go for it and things go poorly, you say, well, that's their baby. I'll just No, you do just like Jesus did. Give them the authority and then help them to mature through the, through the irresponsibility that they display or the wrong emphasis as they mature. All right. And then the ninth principle is if, uh, if you want to be able to have an impact, you want to develop people and really change the world, then you have to have some diversification. I don't know how this last, the last slide for that got deleted, <laughs> but uh, uh, you have to be able to... Diversification. D-I-V-E-R-S-I-F-I-C-A-T-I-O-N. He's doing that for you because he knows if that were him, he would not know how to spell that word if he didn't know that's it. So, if there's more than six letters in it, I'm in trouble. Uh, you know, Jesus, Jesus, it says he sent them out to preach, but when you look at the people Jesus was developing, they were a very diverse group of people. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, as you look at the apostles, you find out they're from different areas. They're, they come from different backgrounds. They, they have different jobs. And there are a lot of different things that... 
<laughs> All right. Uh, Mark chapter 3, verse uh, 14. He appointed 12, designated apostles, that it might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the, the name Bergeris, which means sons of thunder. Okay, let me grab the mic here. You got sons of thunder who get ticked off when people do things they don't like, and you got Peter who loves ticking people off. <laughs> Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And as you go through there, you've got different people from different uh, political parties. You've got people in that group who want to kill other people in that group because of their political views. You've got tax collectors who nobody likes. They're kind of the scum of the earth type of a person. As you look at this group, they're a very, very, very diverse group of people. And you know, the same thing happens if you watch movies now. You watch movies like... Uh, you know, action movies, and how they put all these different people together, X-Men even. You look, and it's a very diverse group of people with all different kinds of talents and powers, and they put them together. It's a very, you know, it's a famous theme and getting something done that you need diversity. And uh, I think about our campus ministry, and one of the things that's been very good for me in our campus ministry is uh, Ben Mullins moved here. And Ben's from Brazil. And Ben and I are best friends. We're together nonstop. We work together. We live together. We work in the ministry together. We hate, you know, I'm kidding. We, you know, we're together nonstop. And we're very, very close. But if you ask anyone, Ben and I are very, very, very different people. Very different people. Ben, I'm, I'm extremely spastic and I forget things and I'm not disciplined. And, you know, and Ben is a very disciplined kind of guy. He, he, wants, he knows how to get things done. And our, our temperaments are different, all kinds of things. But the thing I can tell you is that Ben and I are very good for each other. And we help to balance each other out. And we affect people in different ways. And there are people who I know that I would have a difficult time helping. And I can say, hey, I, why don't you talk to Ben about this? Because I, and I know Ben's strengths. And he's able to step in. And, and there's a diversity there that allows our ministry to be more effective because Ben is involved in our ministry. And, uh, and that, that diversity comes with good things and bad things. It allows you to help more people, and it also creates uh, tension and friction sometimes. Ben and I have had it out. I know sometimes I do stupid things, and I don't get work done that I need to get done, and it frustrates Ben. And he's like, Carrie, you've got to be more on top of this. You've got to be more responsible. You've got to be more disciplined. And he's exactly right. And then there are times where Ben, because of his personality type, where he gets upset when there's too much craziness going on. And I have to say, Ben, knock off your attitude. If we're going to help people, then we have to do this. And we have to set each other straight. Put away the Uzi, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, we, we have to, but we work together, and because of it, there's a diversity that allows us to help different types of people and more people. And as uh, the apostles went out to preach, they could go to different areas where they could identify with people and they could work with different types of people. And you see later on that they have certain ministries that they're a part of, certain people that they're reaching to even after Jesus is gone. That diversity, when we train diverse groups of people, allows us to have a wider impact. And if you're not really careful, you will choose people like you because it's what you like to do. And there are studies that have been formed, and I was watching one the other day on one of the National Geographic, and they put groups of people together and they found that they had did surveys and they'd rank these people according to talents, abilities, and attractiveness. And they put them all in, in an environment where they were together and within just a few days, people began to hang out. They didn't know their ratings at all, but almost everybody classified with groups, the eight, the nines, and the tens, uh, eight, nines, and tens were together. The, six, the five, six, and sevens were together. 
and, and they segmented into groups without even knowing that they'd been grouped. Without exception in the survey, they, they, there was no twos that grouped with tens. No. There was no fours that grouped with tens. So it was, there's this tendency you have. And one of the things you need to know is that you don't have to be like me or Carrie to be effective in campus ministry. A lot of people go, man, you guys are intense and we're crazy. And there's a good side to intensity, you know. You know, you, you speed along real fast, you know, fast, and there's a bad side, you know, when you hit the tree, you know, going 100 miles an hour. So there, there, for every blessing you have in temperament, you have a cursing that's there. I believe that God uses commitment and passion, a commitment to him and a passion for people. And, and no matter who you are, I think those are two things that regardless of your temperament trait, you have to possess those two things. But it's an incredible mistake for you to look at somebody who is committed to Jesus and passionate about helping people and because they are of a, of a either if you're, if you're like me, to look and say it's somebody who is more calm and, 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 and you know, more golden retriever-like, okay? Uh, it's wrong. You'll make a huge mistake. You'll miss blessings. But the same thing's true with you guys that are, that are quiet sometimes. Because guys like me get on your nerves, but also we intimidate you sometimes. And so it's easier just, you know, to have a calm workplace to where this annoying person isn't around. But the thing is, you miss. You miss. When you look at the ministry of Jesus, again, look at the different group of people that he chose. And he chose them intentionally. And I think part of his intention, he wanted all of us to know, regardless of temperament trait, that person, if they're committed to Christ, if they're passionate about Christ and passionate about helping people, God can use them powerfully. So that's the final principle that we give to you. And we're going to break now. We're going to pray, then we break. to break for so long, then we'll come back and we can five-minute break, and then you come back and, and, and ask questions. Let's pray. God, thank you again for the ministry model of Jesus. Father, thank you for the way that it shows up in, in the Gospels. Father, thank you for the way that we get to see it work in the book of Acts. Father, the way that we see then in, in the implementation of it through the Gospels, that, that in the training that we see, that there's this incredible imitation <coughs> process that's there. Father, I pray that you'll help us to push aside any traditions or, Father, any trends that we would have and to be able to trust your word to discover how we really have an, an enduring way of raising up leaders. Father, in all of this, the goal is to become like your son and to bring others into that relationship with him. So, Father, transform us, use us, and help us to understand, Father, that we have been blessed by an incredible Savior who died so that we could be saved and lived and modeled the way that gave us a blueprint on how we could best save others. Thank you for both things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.